Hi, I'm Michael Stittle. And I'm Nick Nanos. And welcome to Trendline. So they're still counting the votes at the U.S. election, but newly declared president-elect Joe Biden got a late push from mail-in ballots. All right, CTV News is calling an election win for Democrat Joe Biden as results come in from Pennsylvania. I'll repeat that. Former Vice President Joe Biden has just won the presidency of the United States, pulling off a narrow win in Pennsylvania. Biden has been pushed over the benchmark of 270 electoral college votes. You know, the thing is, we talked about, you know, when we, we talked about the polling in one of the previous uh, Trendline podcasts, and, and what it showed was is that if someone's saying that they were voting on election day, they're more likely to vote for Trump. If they're voting in the mail ballots, they're much more likely to vote for Biden. And remember, we talked about this. We said, election night, the polls are going to look wrong. People are going to be clutching their chests. They're going to be angry. And uh, because Trump will be much more competitive than uh, people thought. And then the mail ballots will be counted. And, you know, even though there's been a declared winner, you know, I was looking at some states like New York State, they're still counting ballots. I think there's mm -hmm. still 40% of the ballots that still need to be counted in New York State. And that's one of the big states that's also very big for the Democrats. So we'll probably see a little movement, a little more positive Biden movement in the top numbers uh, when everything is completely counted. So we'll do a full breakdown when when everything's been counted, which as you just said, Nick, will take a while. I, I think they're also heading towards a, a recount in Georgia because things are so tight there. Uh, and, and we're also gonna see a, a two Senate runoff races there as well, which is uh, pretty interesting. Um, so, in terms of state polling, because in the previous episode you said that we really had to, to be careful with with state polls, some of them in this in the states. How did how did they do in this in this election? Well, the, the when we look at the state polls compared to the national polls, um, the state polls uh, a lot of them really uh, really missed the mark. You know, the under, other interesting thing is that there's been a pro proliferation of polling that has been done in the U.S. Uh, presidential election. And when we look at the breakdown, about 80% of those polls were online surveys. Only about 14% were uh, telephone, random telephone surveys of mm. land and cell lines, which is the way Nanos does our ballot tracking. And uh, you know what we saw is that a lot of those state polls relied on online samples, and they just did not hit the mark as well as a lot of the telephone surveys did. And actually, there was a, a recent uh, blog post by Claire Durant from the University of Montreal. Mm. She's uh, quantitative methods uh, survey professor I have a lot of time and uh, respect for. And she crunched the numbers and suggested that the telephone survey, you know, we talk about polling, polling being wrong. Well, the telephone surveys hmm. were actually much closer to the mark. There was one that I follow. I think it's called IBD uh, TIPP, TIP, IBD TIP. Hmm. Only had a four-point margin. Uh, their election call was a four-point margin. And it looks like that's probably where we're going to land, a four-point margin between uh, Biden and Trump. So that pollster also did well and has a pretty good long-term election, election track record. So maybe the one thing that we've learned is not all methodologies are equal and, uh, and that some did a little better job, a much mm -hmm. better job than some of the others, which showed a big Biden lead. It's it's always a fascinating question how how do you reach out to people I mean, I mean in these modern times with with you know online messaging and etc but but just random phone calls it still seem to be the most successful way. Yeah, well, the thing is, is that when we look at the coverage, we put our can I put my propeller hat on? Just yep. 
yeah, I'm a loser anyways. But anyways, <laughs> uh, you know, if we if we talk about that, we always talk from a, a research perspective on coverage. Hmm. Um, and uh, the other, so what 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 we do know is that in Canada and the United States, the coverage when you look at landlines and cell lines, both of those combined, is nearly 100%. It's like 99%, which means that everyone in the United States and in Canada pretty well has either a landline. If they don't have a landline, they have a cell line in order to be reached. But internet access is a little different. Internet access is a lot lower in rural areas compared to urban areas. This could have created a natural bias in favor of Joe Biden because a lot of those rural areas did not do not have the same type of internet service and internet coverage as those high density urban areas where the Democrats do well. So, you know, in a way, the online pollsters and Nanos does online surveys too, because mm -hmm. there's, there's a good time and place for online surveys, but uh, they're a bit hostage to coverage. And uh, that could probably account for part of the difference between that particular way of doing a survey and uh, other ways of doing uh, a survey to measure ballot support. Now the the results are so close in some of these battlegrounds. Um, I mean, it took you know, it took a long it took days to call Pennsylvania. Clearly, it it seems to be fueling this mis misinformation now about whether the vote's been legitimate, and President Donald Trump still has yet to concede. Uh, so what what can we expect from from him until inauguration day? Well, I think we're we're probably we should expect what he said he would do. Hmm. He said he would be president until the. Uh, until the day that he is, until the day that he leaves the White House, that it's pretty clear. He said that in the very first presidential debate. I thought it was quite interesting. So he is not, he does not consider himself a caretaker president. He does not consider himself a lame duck president. He considers himself as someone who can exercise the full authority of the presidency until the very end and until uh, Joe Biden is, uh, is sworn in as president. So this is going to be uh, very different from other transitions because other transitions, Michael, have been very genteel. There'd be yeah. like a session speech and then there'd be like a nice meeting or it might not be nice, but there'd be at least a, a, a kind of a cordial meeting where the outgoing president might give advice to the incoming president. And we know that happened with Trump, right? He talked yeah. about his meeting with Barack Obama and they talked about North Korea. Mm -hmm. so I don't think that's going to happen this time because the person that's leaving thinks that they won the election and that it's been stolen from them and they and and that's their primary narrative so uh so i think uh, i don't think anyone that thinks that uh, donald trump's going to be a little bit of a policy wallflower is sadly mistaken he's going to be full throttle 100 president until the very last day that he's uh that he leaves the white house we, we've also seen him uh continue to fire people and, and sort of uh, change, you know, positions in, in the Trump administration. I think there was a Department of Defense uh, person who just got fired. Um, so I guess, you know, lots, lots to happen in the in, in the weeks ahead. <laughs> Maybe it's going to be, hey, Michael, I think it's going to be like the Apprentice episode, like, oh, yeah, <laughs> even worse. Oh, brother. <laughs> of the United States would be like, hey, you're not going to do what I want you to do. You're fired. Oh. And uh, that's probably what we're going to see. You know, the, but the thing is, is uh, that's for Donald Trump, that's to character. Mm -hmm. uh, throughout, his, throughout his presidential administration, whenever anyone has not done what he's wanted them to do, he has fired them. That's the way he runs his business operations. That's the way he was president. That's probably the way he's going to continue over the, over the next while. Uh, 
in the in the last part of his uh, his presidency. So he's still going to have a lot of eyeballs. Plus, he's still going to be tweeting. Hmm. So uh, you know, as long as he's tweeting, he's still uh, he's still a big factor out there and something to manage for all of his allies, including Canada. Now, uh, Trump joins a handful of one-term presidents, but do you think there's any chance that he will stay in politics and, and maybe even make a future run for the presidency again? Yeah, can we bring out the history reel? Like, the time machine again. I don't know. <laughs> you know, I, if we can grab, a, you know, we can put, let's put Grover Cleveland up on the screen. I never thought I'd ever say that. Grover for Cleveland. Grover Cleveland, who was not only the 22nd president of the United States, he was the 24th president of the United States. So could Trump pull a Grover? Are we going to call it a Grover? Or a pulling Clinton? a Grover sounds pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> so could Trump do that? There's already speculation now that one of the reasons why he's contesting the election is, uh, is to maintain his control over the Republican Party and that either he might run again or one of the Trump children might mm -hmm. run as a, a candidate. And you know, the, the other thing that a lot of people underestimate in terms of his current power over the Republican Party is the fact that his campaign actually did an exceptional job at turning out the vote and down ticket, right? Down ticket are the people above the, there's the president at the top of the ticket and then it's like mm. governor and then the, the state races for the Senate and the House. Down ticket Republicans in those states and counties benefited from the Donald Trump turnout machine, mm. and uh, they owe him. So uh, I don't think he's, uh, you know, I don't think by any stretch he's a lame duck within the Republican uh, Party. And uh, you know, considering the number, he got more votes than he did in 2016. Yeah, still a factor. And uh, and I think for a lot of those voters, they might not necessarily all be Republicans, but they're definitely 100% Trump supporters. Yeah, uh, because of what he's accomplished. And we didn't quite see, I mean, we didn't see the U.S. Uh, House of Representatives gain seats. I think they're down. Um, you know, they were actually beaten back by a few. And and the Senate, the, the, I think there were some expectations among some Democratic supporters that they may take control of the Senate. But, you know, I think the best they can hope for now is a 50-50 split, split with the vice president. That's, that's, why, that's why Mitch McConnell is saying stuff to support the president, because he needs the president's support mm. and uh, in order to, to stay the leader of the Senate. Hmm. Uh, assuming that the Republicans hold on. So, uh, so it's, it's much more complex. You know, at the top, it looks, you know, at the top, you think, okay, he's done, right? Yeah. He's done, he's finished. And then you kind of look at it as like, no, he's not done. He's going to, he's going to govern as president till the last day of his mandate. There are Republicans that owe him their political success because of his uh, ability to turn out the vote uh, in a lot of these uh, Republican districts. And, uh, and I would expect that he's still going to exercise his influence as long as he can. Uh, meanwhile, pre President-elect Joe Biden is already working on his COVID-19 plan uh, because, you know, in late January when he takes office, he'll want to hit the ground running. Um, north of the border here in, in Canada, we're also seeing cases rise. Uh, this week, the Prime Minister, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, uh, urged provinces to, to act. I would hope that no leader in our country is easing public health vigilance because they feel pressure not to shut down businesses or slow down our economy. I understand that worry, but let me tell you, that's how we end up with businesses going out of business and the economy damaged even more. Beating COVID is the only way 
to protect our economy. So, Nick, we're seeing this, I guess, this pressure on the federal government between economic concerns and, and health concerns. Um, and the provinces, meanwhile, um, I think in, in Ontario, uh, Ontario Premier Doug Ford is, is wanted to reopen restaurants in Toronto, for example. But um, in, at the local level, places like Toronto have decided not to do that. So it, it seems kind of like a, like a downloading of, of uh, responsibility at, at this point with the prime minister asking provinces to, to act. Well, you know, the thing is, is back at the beginning of the pandemic, if we all remember, it was one big, uh, one big happy hug. Between, mm -hmm. uh, between the federal and provincial governments. Everyone was on the same page. Uh, everyone was supportive of, uh, of each other. The federal government was pumping not just stimulus into the pockets of Canadians and Canadian enterprises, was helping provincial governments uh, kind of cope with the pandemic. You know, fast forward then, you know, now we're into November and, you know, what we're seeing is, is a little more, uh, a little more friction, why don't we say? Not a lot of friction, but more friction, at least uh, compared to the past. And I think a lot of this has to do with the fact that a lot of uh, a lot of Canadians are frustrated. And in our polling, when we ask uh, Canadians what the top national issues of concern are, you can see definitely a second spike of concern, hmm. where upwards of four out of every ten Canadians identify coronavirus as their top national issue of concern. Jobs is at around twelve. Healthcare is at around nine percent. And uh, and you know, so as a result, I think for a lot of Canadians, there's still anxiety on like. How long is this going to work? What do I need to do? And what does this mean for the future? And you know, look at some of those Ontario numbers in terms of active cases, mm. and uh, they're really starting to increase. But there's one stat that I look at. Mm. It has to do with, I know this sounds so morbid, excess mortality rate mm -hmm. measured by StatsCan. That is a difference in the number of deaths in Canada for over like this month and, or one particular month compared to a month ago. And uh, when you look at the trend line prepared by Statistics Canada using the uh, Canadian health kind of uh, data that's, uh, that's shared, it's quite interesting when you can see that the, you can see the trend line veer, veer up at the beginning of the pandemic where there are definitely more excess deaths. But, mm. you know, check out the trend line in... Uh, June, July, and part of August, you can see the number of excess deaths goes down is the same as the year before. I guess in this particular case, you could argue, and there's a little bit of a spike, at least in the last part of the tracking, but you could argue that the beginning of the pandemic was a pandemic. There were more Canadians that were dying as a result, but that the summer, here's, here's an existential question. If more Canadians aren't passing away, is it really a pandemic that is lethal? Mm. Um, and it speaks to the fact that uh, I believe one of the reasons why it's like this, even though the number of cases are up, is because Canadians are doing a better job at responding. The healthcare system is doing a better job at, dis at responding. There's social distancing, masks, and all those things that even though the number of cases are going up, the mortality rate at least seems to be under control now much more hmm. than it was at the beginning of the pandemic. I, I guess the hope too is I, I think at the beginning of the pandemic we saw outbreaks in long-term care homes where more you know it was a more vulnerable population was getting it and therefore the mortality rate was rising. I think we're seeing a, a bit of that in Manitoba now, but the hope is that we obviously do not see that um, you know over this winter. Yeah, and, um, and yeah. To your point, to your point, Michael, the 
the bulk of the people that have have passed away as a result of the of the pandemic have been over 60 years of age remain over 60 years of age that young people although they are getting the getting the uh getting the virus they're much less likely to be uh to be vulnerable and to, mm. and to pass away as a result of getting it and also in the the uh, mortality rates that you're talking about which goes beyond you know anything related to to COVID-19 uh, we're also seeing I guess the danger is that ICUs reach capacity and and the overall healthcare system gets gets overwhelmed and is unable to deal with other other issues mm-hmm. uh, which obviously you have to be careful with yeah I'm not, yeah the numbers on that front are interesting because about uh, when we look at the trend line I think in in the in this particular week there were 400 Ontarians that were hospitalized as a result of COVID at the height at the, at the beginning of the pandemic, it was upwards of a thousand. So even though the cases are much higher than before, mm-hmm. the hospitalizations are much less than at the at the beginning of this. We're certainly getting better at, at treating it. Uh, uh, C2 National News uh, medical specialist, Avis Favreau has done a lot of reporting on, on you know, amazing ad- advancements in, in treatment for high risk COVID-19 cases. So we definitely have come a long way. Um, Nick, I, I, I'm just, Curious about the messaging from our, our leadership now. It, it seems like uh, sort of a patchwork of, you know, in, in, across the country of, of what you should do and what you should not do. I, and I just want to play a clip from uh, CTTV Ottawa's Graham Richardson talking to Dr. David Williams. Uh, with all due respect to both of you and to your entire team, I really think everybody has tuned you guys out. Like, I just don't think the behavior is changing, both anecdotally and the numbers. The averages here in Ottawa over seven days are actually down. Um, But what do you say to the notion, like, Dr. Williams, you're talking about aspirational things about getting people to change their behavior. I really think they've tuned you out. Um, And how do you get them to not tune you out? Because uh, uh, these numbers are just, uh, uh, they're telling a very different story than what you're talking about. Well, yeah, I think you raise a good point. What's tuned in, tuned out, or what are people saying, I've had enough, I'm going to do my own thing, and and I'm not sure that's me in particular. I think it's, there's some concern about generally as people say, well, in other sectors we watch what's going on, we see what's happening south of the border, uh, the portrayal of different perspectives in the media and the social media, and so people are, uh, I think, at best confused on the matter. So what's your takeaway from this, Nick? Just just this sort of confusion over, you know, who you should pay attention to. Well, one of the key takeaways, and this is the this is the odd part of what's happening more. Now we're having public health public health officials disagreeing with each other, hmm. and also disagreeing with pick your pick your government, the Ford government or the, or the federal government. Um, and you know, I think this is uh, this is not good uh, from a public health perspective. Uh, to have some healthcare practitioners and experts kind of sniping at others and, and having differing opinions from whatever the governments are doing, because the governments at least have been saying or advancing a narrative that they listen to the experts. But what do you do if the experts don't agree? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I think that's, that's the problem. And I, and I think uh, what we have to watch out for is that uh, Canadians generally start to tune out to what the experts are saying because they're disagreeing, and that would that would not be good from a public health perspective or from a public policy perspective. And I think, I think uh, public health officials have to kind of listen to that. You know, in the ideal world, they're on this. You know, for any country to to beat and control the pandemic, 
the country has to be on the same page. They have to have, they have to be working from the same playbook generally and, uh, and to have some certainty. But the problem is, is that, you know, think of it this way. Why don't we use Ontario as an example? In Ontario, they did in order to fight an expected second surge, they uh, did, uh, they put in more restrictive measures. They did not allow bars and restaurants to kind of serve indoors. Mm -hmm. So people did that and they respected it because they were told by the public health authorities and the premier that our best science says that we need to close this in order to fight the pandemic. So everybody does this. Congratulations, that's good. However, what we've seen is an increase in the number of cases. Mm -hmm. So how do the public health officials and how does the government explain, well, you know, to Ontarians, yeah, you've done everything that we've asked you to do and there are more cases of COVID now than there ever have been in our tracking where there's, uh, where there's a significant spike. So then people are wondering, wow, these, these businesses closed for the last number of days. They've taken a hit on their bottom line. They're economically at risk. And it was all for naught because the cases are still going up. And then people were, would be, I think, rightly saying, if restaurants and bars are a vector for spreading this, what's happening in order to explain the second spike? Because right. obviously they're not a vector because uh, things are still uh, moving in the wrong direction. Now, and what does your polling have to say about economic concerns overall? I think the airline industry is still hoping for a sectoral bailout. Uh, are, are Canadians comfortable this winter with, with more um, funding? Well, you know, the thing is, is that we uh, track uh, economic sentiment on behalf of Bloomberg News every week. We ask Canadians a pretty simple question. Do you think in the next six months, will the economy get stronger, weaker, will be the same? About 13% of Canadians believe that the economy will get stronger in the next six months. A whopping 57, five, seven percent believe that the economy will get weaker. Mm. They're more pessimistic by a factor of four to one. And uh, I think a lot of this has to do with the uncertainty. The transition from CERB and that program to the new, uh, new government employment uh, program, and also uncertainty related to will my job be there? Will, will the, my employer still be there? Uh, if my job is still there, will there be fewer hours? How long will these government programs continue? And uh, all that uncertainty speaks to a significantly high level of pessimism when it comes to the future strength of the Canadian economy. Yeah. Uh, Nick, we've, we had a packed show this week. We went through a lot of stuff, but what's, what's your big takeaway? Well, my big, uh, my big takeaway right now is if there was anxiety before, there's going to be hyper-anxiety now because uh, now with a little more confusion on what's needed to fight the pandemic, uh, there'll be heightened anxiety in terms of people's health, heightened anxiety in terms of the economy. The one piece of good news, we do have one piece of good news, is no the good. <laughs> Pfizer announcement. How's that? Yes. Pfizer yes. That they, have, uh, they have a vaccine that is 90%, uh, has 90% efficacy, which is actually mm -hmm. quite strong, quite high, if that ends up to uh, hold out. So uh, people will be holding on to that vaccine and potentially other vaccines as a potential piece of good hope. But in the short term, it's going to be pretty bleak. Uh, Nick, as always, thanks very much. Thank you. And where can we find you? Uh, you can uh, find me on Twitter at Nick, N-I-K, Nanos, or go to the website, www.nanos.co to grab all those stats. And I'm also on Twitter at Michael Stittle, and you can find more information on what we've discussed in this episode also at ctvnews.ca. Thanks for listening.